Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel of St. Luke, um, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. There's two, there's two themes going on in this gospel, actually. And the first is, <clears throat> Luke is continuing this emphasis on the power of faith. We saw um, in the passage that just preceded this, the idea of the, un, of the unworthy servant. And uh, then we also saw um, before that, the, uh, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, and so what he's doing then is he's moving us through into this deeper understanding of the mystery of faith. I think that we've talked before about this, you know, and sometimes we talk about faith as a possession or we talk about faith as something, you know, that's part of our lives. And Luke's gospel wants to make it very clear to us that it's something more than that. It's deeper than that. It's more powerful than that. It's more pervasive than that. The other thing that Luke is talking about is Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. And we've seen so many times before, this is very much a part of Luke's charisma, that um, Jesus is on pilgrimage from Galilee to, to um, Jerusalem to meet his destiny. And that um, everything that happens in his public ministry happens along the way. Um, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, we, we reflect ourselves, you know, pilgrimages are fairly, fairly popular. And uh, there's all sorts of pilgrimages to the Holy Land, pilgrimages to um, Santiago de Compostela, um, pilgrimage to many, you know, Marian shrines and um, even in Ohio to Cary. And all of that's a part, because the pilgrimage is a symbol, it's a sign of our journey from our beginnings until the fulfillment of our being in the kingdom of heaven. And <clears throat> for Luke, it's very important that we get the idea that we're coming from somewhere and that we're going to somewhere. And in order to help us to make that an integral part of our journey and our understanding of the faith, he places Jesus in exactly the same situation, Jesus on pilgrimage from Galilee to the cross to Jerusalem and then to the resurrection. Now, in this particular passage of the gospel, he's skirting along the borders of Samaria. And we know that he's often had a very difficult time um, going through Samaria. They've not welcomed him, they've rejected him, and so forth. But we know in John's gospel, the great gospel of the Samaritan woman, and uh, we also know the story in Luke of the Good Samaritan, the one who has uh, stopped to help the beaten man. And there's two possibilities of why, of why Luke is emphasizing the role of the Samaritans. The first is that they are an extension beyond the community of Judaism. And Luke's gospel, if nothing else, is, is that which, which includes um, the non-Jews into the kingdom of heaven. It's very much... Uh, it's very much oriented toward the um, <clears throat> conversion of the Gentiles and also the conversion of the Samaritans because we're going to see that in, at the, in the um, 
eighth chapter of Acts, when Philip goes to Samaria. He has a very, very successful mission trip into Samaria. And uh, he's, very, he's very well received. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ is preached and the Lord Jesus Christ is accepted. So we have those two things. Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, the gospel said, traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. So here are his two pieces, Samaria and Galilee. <clears throat> and Samaria and the pilgrimage. And there it says he enters one of the villages there and um, doesn't tell us whether it's in Samaria or Galilee. But 10 lepers came to meet him. They stood some way off and called out to him, Jesus, Master, take pity on us. We know the situation with the lepers, that leprosy was a, was a horrible disease and, and an incurable disease. It was incurable up until the days, I believe, of penicillin. Um, it, it just simply rotted the body. <clears throat> and um, so here now there are 10 of them. But they're standing some way off because the lepers, because they were so contagious, did have to stand a long way off. And they were not allowed to integrate with regular people and they lived in colonies. We know the famous story of Father Damien and the leper colony of Molokai. How he went and gave his life to those people, contracting the disease himself and dying from it. But being so in solidarity with those whom the Lord loved, but who had been so severely afflicted by this horrible disease. So they stand afar off, and they're supposed, if they see anyone coming, they're supposed to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that people know to avoid them and not come in contact with them and not become um, infected with the, with, uh, with the contagious disease of leprosy. The problem was, of course, also at this time, is that any skin disease was considered to be leprosy, even that which was not what we call Hansen's disease. And sometimes those would cure up, and, uh, and so the person could become clean again. Um, things like uh, any kind of, of, of skin problem, like psoriasis or any of the others. Um, they had to go and, and stay at the outskirts until they had healed of whatever was wrong of them. So these <clears throat> 10 lepers, um, and it's going to turn out that nine of them are Jews and one of them a Samaritan. And so they cry out, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They don't keep separate apart from each other in the leper colony. There's no, that, that kind of false distinction um, kind of falls away. And, uh, and so when he saw them, he said, go and show yourself to the priests. Um, now, as they were going away, they were cleansed. <clears throat> so Jesus heals their leprosy. He sends them to the priests because the priests were the ones who could, uh, who could verify the fact that although they had been lepers, they were now cured and they were able to be reunited into regular society once more. And so that's, and the Jews would have gone, of course, to a separate priest than the Samaritan would have gone to. Well, the nine Jews now disappear from the story, and the Samaritan returns to us now. And it said, finding himself cured, one of them came back praising God at the top of his voice and threw himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. And the man was a Samaritan. And here we have Luke's idea once again that when Israel rejects the Messiah, 
it will be the others, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, who will embrace Christianity. And in fact, as we said in, in the Acts of the Apostles, Philip takes the message to the Samaritans and they do embrace Jesus Christ. This made Jesus say, were not all ten made clean? The other nine, where are they? It seems that no one has come to give back praise to God except this foreigner. And he said to the man, stand up and go your way, for your faith has saved you. <clears throat> so Jesus, the, the Samaritan, comes back. He thanks Jesus. He throws himself at his feet and thanks him. And Jesus says, where, where's, where are the rest of them to say thank you? Where are the rest of them to give gratitude? And this becomes <clears throat> also a very powerful paradigm of, of our own situation, of our own life, of our, of our own way. How often is God thanked? for all of the good things. He is constantly petitioned. How often is he thanked? It's so easy, but you know, it's like having a serious illness. Um, once the illness is over, it seems like, you know, you'll never forget this, but once it's over, it's over. And, uh, and you really don't dwell on it. You can go back and say, well, I had this, or I had this, or this happened to me, that happened. But, but now the, the, the consciousness of the pain or whatever it was, is gone. And uh, we have recovered not only physically but emotionally from those illnesses. Well, to a certain extent, the lepers were overjoyed at having been made clean. The priests returned them into their own societies. And so they were so overjoyed that it didn't seem real to them anymore. But the Samaritan, the things ran deeper in the Samaritan, and he did come back, and he did thank the Lord for what the Lord had done for him. And Jesus acknowledges the fact that the nine others did not, but the foreigner did. And this is the reemphasis of, of Luke's um, attempt, and, and Luke's rather successful attempt, to be sure that people knew that, that the outsiders were also incorporated in the kingdom of God and were disciples of the Lord. But then when the man thanked Jesus and fell down at his feet, Jesus says, stand up and go your way. Your faith has saved you. And here again, <clears throat> we go back to this constant thematic, the thematic of faith in our lives. Faith is an active thing in our lives. It's not a possession. It's not an identity card. It's none of those things. Faith actually is a power and an effective power within us that brings about all sorts of, of change within our hearts, within our souls, and within our lives. When faith is active, when faith is, is alive within us, then we are able to experience in a lot of ways the goodness of God in the world. The world is a troubled place. The world has always been a troubled place. But somehow to believe, to be a believer in the middle of it, gives a certain amount of peace, a certain amount of security, a certain amount of assurance, and a certain amount of hope. For what is there then to faith? What is this business of faith? We know that at the Council of, of, of Arange in the sixth century, that it was defined clearly that faith is a gift from God. 
And this becomes problematic to us, actually, because if faith is a gift from God, does that mean that those who don't have faith have not been given a gift from God to believe? And if so, we start to drift then toward that, that Calvinist position that God saves some and condemns others through the distribution of his goodness, through the distribution of his grace. We found that become one of the one of the key issues in the great Jansenist controversy of the 17th century, when the whole notion and questions of grace were basically in and of themselves not really helpful. Um, you know, it's one of those old things, you ask the wrong questions, you get the wrong answers. But the idea that faith was, was starting to become thought of as a quantity, a commodity, instead of as a quality. And basically, faith is a gift that, according to the Council of Orange, is a gift that a person receives from the Lord. It is our understanding that everyone who, desi who would desire that gift would receive it. And that was the whole purpose of missionary activity in the church, for instance, was in order to create the desire to believe in people in order that they might open themselves to the gift of God. And once the faith is within us, compared to its origin and source, it is minuscule. It is, it is, um, it is tiny and, and un, un, undramatic because it is a reflection of the gift of the Lord who is infinite. However, if we take what the Lord gives us and if we cooperate with his grace in such a way to allow it to grow within us, faith can become a very dominant and a very powerful factor within our lives where it more adequately begins to reflect the author of faith and, uh, and the object of faith itself where it often then will bring into to our understanding and our sight and the, and the whole understanding of, the, of what goes on in the world, that faith is a quality, a saving quality that transforms an individual and helps that individual to reflect more clearly and more completely the origin of that faith, who is the living God. I think that too often, you know, we, we take it simply as, as a consolation. Too often we take it, um, we take it somehow as, uh, as an identity marker within our lives. You know, I am identified by my faith. Well, as a title, no, not necessarily. But in reality, yes, if you live it, then it becomes a remarkable quality in the human person. And not only a remarkable quality in the human person, but it becomes an attractive quality that draws others to it. The most important part, the most important part of missionary activity is to make the faith attractive to others through the quality of the missionaries, through quality of their lives and the holiness of their lives. There's, a, there's, there's some argumentation, of course, in, in missiology and, and how we'd go about that. And some think that you have to bring material relief in order to get people's attention, and others don't think that. Um, but whatever it is, the Catholic Church spread throughout the entire world through its missionary activity, and oftentimes through, through the witness and the power of the witness of the lives of those who brought the faith into the other part, into all parts of the world. There is hardly a place today in the world where there is no Catholic, 
Catholic presence, where there is no presence of the, of, of the Lord Jesus, of the Son of God. And that has to do not with good marketing. It has to do with generous souls. And I think we've mentioned before the, the amazing story of some of our missionaries. Um, in our own country, the, the North American martyrs, Mother Cabrini, um, you know, Catherine Drexel, um, John Neumann, all of these people whose faith so infilled their lives, so, so took command of their personhood that they became beacons for others and created the desire, created the desire to believe. There's a lot of question. I know sometimes someone says, well, I can't do this. I have no motivation. Um, motivation to a person who is open is actually the witness of those people around them. That should be sufficient motivation to believe. There's complications, um, cultural and social complications. We know that too. And yet at the same time, if the witness is powerful enough, a person can overcome those, uh, those realities which, uh, which would bar them from having the faith that Jesus talks about in the gospel today. That your faith has saved you. Well, obviously, obviously, the faith was manifest when they cried out to Jesus and they called him master. That means they believed in who he was. Take pity on us. Whether they knew the mystery of the Messiah, whether they knew the reputation, whether they knew the quality of the person, we don't know that. But they do know enough to call him master, and they do believe that he is going to be able to help them. He, in fact, does help them in this story, and they are cured of their leprosy. And that the faith, therefore, that they had in the Lord Jesus was rewarded because that which they needed most in their life, they received. However, in receiving it, there seems to have been a real lack of gratitude on the part of most of them. Perhaps not maliciously so or malevolently so, but just absent-mindedly so, being so thrilled with the fact that they had no longer had leprosy, the past just simply went away from them, except for the one in whom the rivers ran more deeply, except for the one who had the greater faith. And he returned to give thanks to the author of his healing. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Well, he, there's, two, there's two meanings to this. The first is your faith in him as master, as Messiah, saved you from leprosy. But your willingness and your gratitude to the Lord has saved you for eternity. And so faith then comes in two different dimensions in this gospel. It comes in the acknowledgement of Jesus, and then it comes in the love and the gratitude to Jesus for what he has done for us in our lives. Leprosy is not only the physical disease, leprosy is the ravages of sin in our lives as well. And almost all people have sinned sufficiently to have deep regret and deep remorse about the times that they were unfaithful to the Lord. And yet, at the same time, they can be cleansed from this leprosy of sin in the same way that these ten men were cured of leprosy of the body. Um, they can be cured of leprosy of the soul. But when that happens, then they have a new relationship with the Lord. They have a relationship of 
of care, they have a relationship of love, they have a relationship of gratitude, they have a, la a relationship which somehow or other lets them know that they are truly free in so many, in so many different ways. The faith then that comes at the end of the gospel is the faith that brings us into salvation. And uh, we can say, you know, that's a great controversy in the Reformation time. Um, Luther says we are saved by faith alone. Well, the gospel doesn't say we're saved by faith alone, but it does say we are saved by faith. And so faith is an operative principle in salvation. It is not disembodied from us. It is not simply an extrinsic reality in our lives. It is a, a way of life. It is a transformation of the inner person. It is something that draws us into conformity with, with, with Jesus. It's something that is helpful to us, something that is good for us, something that is a free and benevolent gift of God to us, which we nurture and help to grow through the good works that we do and through the response to grace that we have the opportunity to do. And so when Luther can say we are saved by faith alone, no, we're not saved by faith alone. When scripture does not even say that. But faith is part of salvation. There is no question about it. And with the, to hear what we have is this fundamental faith of recognizing Jesus as Messiah and then trusting him enough to plead with him. And then after that, the faith that comes with gratitude and thanksgiving and the awareness, the deep awareness, not only of who this person Jesus is, but who he is in my life. And that's the other thing with the Samaritan leper who came back. This was something in his life, this transformed his life. And he knew that the author of that transformation was Jesus. And so he was deeply in gratitude for him, which meant that he believed in him more deeply. And in that deeper faith that he had, he had been, Jesus said to him, you will be saved. So it's not Jesus imposing faith upon them, and it's not Jesus imposing salvation. It's Jesus saying from inside of yourself, with my goodness to you, my witness to you, my presence in the world, I drew you out of yourself toward everlasting life. And that you will be rewarded for that, for being responsive to that, for being aware and willing to, in some way, live with that. Then the question then comes for ourselves. What does all this mean? We know we, we, we talk about we talk about all these things, but what about personally? I mean, our faith is not an impersonal phenomenon, and our faith is not just a disembodied faith that exists in some kind of, of ritual or some kind of a Christian denomination. Our faith is real and alive, and our faith is something that has to be more than just, as I said before, an identity tag. It has to be something that begins to transform our whole way of life. If we can look back in our lives and we can say, I have not changed since I was young, or I have not changed in the last 10 years, for the better, doesn't mean we do better things, but it means that inside of ourselves, 
we are more whole and more complete and more conscious and more aware of the presence of the living God. This should be a constant throughout the journey that each of us has in our own lifetime. For it is, it is this journey that for us brings us ultimately into the kingdom of heaven itself. And so there is, you know, in fundamentalist Protestantism, I know a lot of times when, when I grew up in a, in a village which was primarily that, and, uh, and you used to get asked all the time, have you chosen Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Um, and you know, our response as Catholic kids uh, in my family, well, you know, Jesus chose me. I didn't choose him. Um, but after he chooses me, then, then, you know, their question is something that we ought to think about. Do I respond to that? And that's the whole thing in this gospel today. One of them responds to the gift of faith. One of them responds to Jesus' gift of himself, to them, gift of his power to them, and gift of his love to them, and, and gift of his, of his uh, desire for goodness and healing in the world to them. So, so we have to be careful because if we don't accept Jesus into our lives personally, we run the risk of, of, of eviscerating our faith and of making Catholicism a club. And there's many groups within Catholicism that would like it simply to be a club, their club, where everything is done their way. Um, that's, that's not faith. That's not faith at all. Faith is an openness and a willingness to encounter the Lord God wherever we have him, wherever he is. It is a desire to be close to him, which is why we have <clears throat> adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, which is why people come to daily Mass. It's a desire to be closer to the Lord, and that's faith alive and at work within us. Let us be grateful to the Lord that he has given us this transformative reality in our lives. And let us also pray that in that transformation, we become more reflective of his presence in the world and more effective in the lives of others around us. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.